we actually took an indoor roller coaster and created a uh, scenario so it would be a night scenario there. Um, we, at Dominion Power, we had the uh, a, a training tower. A the, transmission a, tower. Transmission training tower. We took, I was flying hot air balloons at the time, and I had an old balloon, and we took and strung it up in the tower like... Um, that was my personal favorite. Yeah, where, where we had an ac accident with multiple people in the basket and, and hanging off of the tower and, and had them do that. We, um, Purina, we got an opportunity that we actually had a confined space in a silo grain with silo. grain. Or, or with dog food, and they had to go in and, and get them out from there. Welcome to the Firehouse Logbook Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Dawson, and uh, joining me co-hosting today is uh, from Episode 1, John Crosby. John, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Robbie. And welcome back, and uh, you're going to be my wingman on this uh, as much as anything to kind of keep me in line, but you've also got a pretty significant history with this topic we're going to be talking about, so uh, uh, if anybody heard some of those comments from the inaugural episode, we're going to be diving into one of those today. Um, and while I was never assigned to the training division, I did get to teach uh, a lot of the recruit school classes, particularly a lot of the live burn exercises that the recruits had in the academy. And, and it was that structure fire environment. You want to give those trainees as close to a realistic experience as they can get in the training scenario uh, to give to replicate that real world firefight. Uh, and it's sometimes hard to do in the relatively sterile environment of that structural burn building. And it doesn't get any easier to create those real-world experiences as the skills involved become more complex, more technical, and more advanced. In fact, it really becomes even harder. Uh, the logistics alone involved in creating industrial emergencies or technical rescue simulations is difficult. And add to that the fact that the real risks associated with those training events are that much more significant, and the challenges to putting on advanced training adds up, to almost, adds up almost exponentially. But it was the desire for that real-world rescue scenario that to test the skills, abilities, and the equipment of rescue teams in Virginia that led to the start of an annual event that started in 1995 known as Rescue Challenge. And that event was put on every year across Virginia ever since, with the exception of 2020 thanks to COVID. And they've had 25 different rescue challenges across Virginia since it started. The event was uh, the brainchild of one of our guests today, Battalion Chief, who's retired from the Henrico County Division of Fire, Steve Wood. Welcome, Steve, and uh, thanks for letting us get here to get together here today to talk about Rescue Challenge. Certainly. Appreciate the opportunity. Um, it's great to be able to go back and relive a little bit and go back and think through some of the things, and a little nostalgia is great. Exactly. And also joining us today is a, uh, is a kind of an inaugural member of the Rescue Challenge team as well, who was heavily involved for a number of years uh, in the ongoing administrative management of the effort, also retired from Henrico Division of Fire, Ed Donovan. Welcome, Ed. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, before we dive into what the Rescue Challenge actually was or evolved into, uh, we'll talk to, to Steve and Ed a little bit more about uh, their background. So, uh, Steve, let's start with you. Uh, you know, again, how long have you been retired from Henrico? Uh, ten years. Ten years. Uh, so. Twenty 10 I left so 10 years in Ju this past July and uh, 
how did you get started in the fire service or, or EMS? I, I kind of know that background because we've got some connections through our volunteer time, but uh, share with us where that all came from. Well, um, 16 years old, I had a neighbor that moved in down the street from me. We got to be really good friends, and um, he decided that uh, he wanted to be a firefighter. I was looking in the, as to be a police officer, actually. And um, he came down and he convinced me to go with him to join the volunteer rescue squad. Jim Murphy um, got me involved up front. And so at 16, I joined the rescue squad thinking, well, I'll go ahead and do this for a few years and then I'll move on. And um, it just progressed into several years volunteer rescue squad, then several years volunteer fire department, and then on to a career fire department. The ironic part about that is that uh, I became a firefighter and Jim Murphy became a police officer. <laughs> so the changing roles, as it were. So he, you scored better on the test, in other words. Is that what happened? <laughs> hey, that's what I tell him that's anyway. Right. That's right. So what, what was your career like in, uh, in Henrico? Were you strictly an operations guy or did you wind up moving around? Oh, actually, I, I kind of got all the pieces, parts. I uh, enjoyed the full variety. I came on as a firefighter, and then I spent five, seven years in the training bureau doing training, uh, EMS and fire training, and I was two years in the fire marshal's office, and I went through all the ranks. I went through firefighter, lieutenant, captain, battalion chief. I was a battalion chief for my last 14 years uh, with the department, and um, I got the opportunity to work with all the specialty teams and, and in fact, was uh, part of creating the hazmat team, the tech rescue team, the water rescue team, the mass casualty management team. So I, I was just involved in it, a little of everything. So not much spare time, in other words, uh, during no, your career. Gotcha. No, not really. No, I was pretty much fully in, immersed into the department. So how, how many years on total? 34. 34 years. Any, 34 uh, paid years yeah, and a couple and volunteer years. Yep. Any major incidents or uh, events that happened that you responded to over that course that were kind of memorable? Um, yeah, we, we had a, I guess probably the worst day of my career was when the hurricane came through. Um, uh, Gaston? Gaston, oh, yeah. yep, yep. Uh, I was on duty and we were expecting for rain that day, but nobody had called for anything super out of the ordinary. Um, so it was just a regular day. The afternoon came along, and, and we got a call for a, a water rescue in Lakeside uh, on, a re on a road. And I was like, oh, that's kind of strange. So I was close by, responded. When I showed up, there were several vehicles out in the road. It was raining. It started raining harder and harder and harder and longer. And before the end of the day, we had done 98 actual rescues, uh, water rescues, uh, from a variety of locations. I ended up coordinating several locations um, from where I was at. Uh, I ended up sending people into a harm's way in a way that I just knew that somebody was not going to come out. In fact, we had one boat that went into Lakeside to rescue some folks that were trapped in their houses that we had gotten 911 calls on. And um, the boat went in with the radio and the radio stopped working and we had no contact and no way to get in touch with them and no way to get to them and no backup boat. So I didn't know what their situation was going to be. 
And that happened actually twice. We had a mutual aid from Goochland. They came in and with their boat. They disappeared into an area to, to do rescues and no contact and no way of knowing. Yeah, no, it was it was um it was the worst day of my it was my nine eleven. Yeah, uh, it was the worst day of my career because I just knew we were going to kill somebody that day, and it was going to be on my command. You know, when I sent them in to do the job, and not one person even hesitated to go do whatever we needed to get done. The job, and everybody made it back out, right? Every all all of our folks did. We ended up with uh, a fatality. Uh, the guys actually witnessed. Um, they were doing a rescue at Bryan Park in Lakeside and uh, they had the ladder truck out and the lady drove into the water and uh, while they were there drove into the water and um, they were trying to get to her when the dam broke and water sloshed in pushed it over the side of the railing um, they watched her and with nothing they could do not not a thing and they ended up picking her body up the, the next day about a half mile down river it was a tough day it, it, it was a tough day it was a tough for everybody and and afterwards of course the the residual effects of that you know live with everybody for quite a while so yeah that was probably my worst day well, and maybe uh maybe one day we'll come back and get because uh, i know chesterfield richmond a lot of jurisdictions during gaston were having similar scenarios go on maybe, absolutely uh, absolutely yeah no and well and that was part of the problem is we had nobody to call for mutual aid because everybody was up to their neck already. We yeah. we we ran out of resources. We had more calls coming in than we could handle. We couldn't call for mutual aid because everybody else was tied up just like we were. Yeah. Another interesting idea for another another episode. We'll get uh, <laughs> folks from Chesterfield and Richmond and Goochland come in maybe one day and talk about it. So let's move over to Ed. Ed, uh, kind of same question to you. Um, you know, how long have you been retired now? I've been retired six years. And uh, when did you start? 2015, I started in August of 1977. What uh, what brought you to the to the job? Well, I was an Army brat. I, I grew up all over the country with my father moving around in the military. And we settled in Richmond because that's where uh, my family was from. And I was in college, and I had actually one of the firefighters from Henrico talked to me about getting involved with the fire service and uh, I thought that it would it's something I was always interested in I thought that it would be a great career opportunity for me so I dropped out of college and I took my test and was fortunate enough to be one of the ones that was chosen to come on in Henrico. It was the only test I ever took. I never took one for Chesterfield or Richmond or any of the others. I was fortunate enough to be hired by Henrico almost immediately and went into the training academy and went through that and progressed up through the ranks. I went through all the career development ranks for a firefighter and then finally was promoted to lieutenant. And I sat in that position for about 10 years. And probably the highlight of all of it was uh, becoming uh, part of the technical rescue team. I had a great deal of interest in it. I really wanted to get on the team and to help develop the team. And once I was on the team, I had an opportunity 
through training with Virginia Beach to become part of the FEMA team down there. Well, with the Virginia Task Force. Oh, with cool. Virginia Task Force, too, and was the first member from Henrico to be asked to join that task force. And uh, I served there for, for about six years as a safety officer for them as well as a rescue technician. And all of that was actually because of Rescue Challenge. So you were, in, you were involved with Rescue Challenge before you before went, got that. to work for Task Force. Oh, cool. And uh, have done that, you know, stayed involved with that up until my retirement from 1995 when it all started. Wow. Well, let's, uh, well, let's dive into that then. And, uh, <clears throat> and, you know, I was fortunate enough to be involved in the first couple of years and got to serve as a facilitator at a couple of the events. John... Uh, like I said, he was he was involved in it as well, and was kind of the the safety officer for the event. Um, and we'll talk more about that as we go along. But uh, I'll go straight back to Steve and go and ask, you know, what was the, how did this come about? What was the idea behind it, and um, how did you kick the thing off? Well, Rescue Challenge actually started about ten years, somewhere in the mid '80s, um, when I was with the rescue squad. I um, was designated as the volunteer district rescue chief uh, the virginia association of volunteer rescue squad had different districts and in each district they had different officers so i was the rescue officer for the district and thought you know we got a whole lot of things going on with first aid competitions and it was vehicle extrication was kind of new on the horizon and we were teaching basic and light duty rescue classes through civil defense. We were doing heavy rescue classes. So I thought, well, you know, this would be pretty cool to create teams to compete against each other and have um, multi-discipline problems for them to work. So a six-person team would go in and work like uh, vehicle extrication. Then they'd go do a, a light duty rescue. Then they'd do a heavy rescue. Then they do a, a first aid problem. And so I came up with the concept of a rescue pentathlon or decathlon and went out, put it all together, laid it all out, put it out to the district and no interest. No, nobody, nobody bid on it at all. So it's like, okay, well, maybe this wasn't a good idea. So it went on the back shelf. Well, 10 years later, I was sitting in the, I was in the fire marshal's office. So I was at the office. And I was talking to Mark Light, who was the chief of the fire department at the time. He had come from uh, Roanoke, where he and Charlie King were both state tech rescue instructors and had done a lot of stuff with their team down there. And we were just shooting the breeze, and we were talking about the fact that there was a lot of training going on, uh, tech rescue training going on statewide, but there wasn't a whole lot of calls for anybody to get any experience. And, and at that point, the, the light bulb came on and I went, you know what, what we need to do is we need to create scenarios that are as real as we can possibly make them and give people an opportunity to practice the skills that they learned in the training classes um, with no, no expected training um, items out of it. it, no formalized training. Just here's the scenario, take your team, go work it, and see if you can learn from that. 
and then take that and do the training as a result of uh, what what they got out of it. So I started to formulate this plan of putting together how we could do the teams and how we could the organization and and how many problems could we work and how long were the problems going to be and so we. I put together a package and presented it to the chief, and he said, ah, looks good to me. Let's give it a shot. So I um, went out and touched touch base with a whole bunch of the uh, folks that I knew from doing tech rescue stuff around the state, and to my surprise, everybody I talked to said, great idea, we want to be involved, but we don't have any funds. So... I looked at it and went, okay, well, do, we really don't have any major cost involved in bringing these teams together except for hotel rooms, and I'd, I'd like to give them something. So what we ended up doing was we ended up doing a $50 registration, and for $50, that included your lunch every day, that included a T-shirt, and included a, a banquet, and, um, and then we found a hotel that was a reasonably decent hotel, that was $50 a night. Um, so I went back to the teams and said, hey, here, here's the deal. You guys can come in for dirt cheap training and um, take an opportunity. We had six teams the first year, and they all participated, and they loved it. How many How many folks were on a team? Did you set a cap of minimum, maximum types? We did not. Um, and one of, the, one of the concepts, I guess, that goes with this is I wanted to do as little restrictions on the groups as possible. Uh, you know, if somebody wanted to bring 20 people on their team and they wanted to half the, half the team work this problem and half the next and, and get a chance to watch, then that was fine. Uh, I did give them a minimum. Um, I felt like in order to do the problems, they needed at least 10 people because the problems that we were putting together were complicated enough, complex enough that you, you couldn't do it with three or four people. Um, but we also weighed that out with, we don't want to be spending eight hours or 10 hours doing a problem. So all the problems were based around about two hours with 10 people and um, make sure that they could make that happen. How did, how did you come up with those first scenarios? Were they based in real life events or was it just kind of creative license, if you will, for whoever was working the scenario yes yes <laughs> um for the most part it was um uh, probably more creative um and a creative endeavor um luckily enough my company uh, my part-time company we had been teaching classes at a, uh, several industrial sites so i i had the opportunity to talk to those folks that we had been working with and say hey we're trying to put this together we're trying to do simulated activities you know, a, a, an actual problem, and lo and behold, they jumped in at whole hog. They they wanted to be a part of it. They wanted to be involved in it, and I had no problems finding lots and lots of places to work. And probably the, the primary place that we did the first year, actually the first several years, was King's Dominion. I had worked at King's Dominion as the uh, in the safety department for a couple of seasons, and got to know the folks there, and they were very, very pro whatever they could do for the community and whatever they could do for fire service and EMS and all that stuff. And when I approached um, Chance Hester, was the um, uh, the safety manager, I approached him about doing it, and he said, what do we need to do? What what can we do to help? 
and and how can we be involved? So several of the problems the first year were actually at King's Dominion, and gosh, what a playground for tech rescue junkies, you know, lots and lots of tie-off points, lots of high-angle stuff, lots of rope stuff, confined space. I mean, just everything you, you could ask for was at King's Dominion. We could have done one stop and, and, and been done fine everything. with that. But the reason Rescue Challenge is in May is because it was right before the season opened. Pre-park opening. Yes. It, they were open on the weekends, but they weren't open during the week, which is when we were going to be there. So the park was all cleaned and ready to go, but it wasn't um, in The public service. wasn't there. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, Ed, from your perspective, uh, you know, Steve shared with me you were kind of the one of the key players in the team that set this up. What, uh, what kind of things were you involved with in the first years? Well, for the first five years, I was a participant. Uh, I was not one of the facilitators. Uh, I think that was based a lot on my history that I hadn't really gotten to the point where I was going to feel comfortable being a facilitator and looking at what was going on from a safety aspect. I was still growing in my career, learning everything that I could. So I participated the first five years and had a blast. It was some of the best training I'd ever been involved in. Uh, it actually made me want to do more and to grow with the program and to push the program forward. And as a result, today, there are a number of these programs that are being conducted around the country. Uh, Roco Rescue out of Texas has one that they do. And one of the things that we had to stress early on with this was that this is not a competition. It is a training opportunity uh, because when you start talking about competition, there's always that possibility that people are going to put safety to the side so that they can compete and they're going to be the best. So almost immediately it was stressed to everyone this is not a competition you're not here competing against anyone you are here to learn and to work problems in a real world situation and once we got that across to everybody it actually moved forward very very quickly we picked up teams uh, and by the time that I got involved with the planning aspect of it we had eight teams, I believe it was, Steve, and we, yeah, and we were was, working with. It was not only eight teams. It was probably 20 jurisdictions because most of the teams were made up of multiple jurisdictions. For instance, Roanoke was Roanoke County, Roanoke City, and uh, Salem. Salem. You know, Richmond, the Richmond team was Richmond, Chesterfield, and Henrico, and Hanover. So we, had, we were reaching out and touching lots and lots and lots of jurisdictions. So you take Virginia Beach was all of the jurisdictions down there, Newport News, uh, Portsmouth, all of them that were participants in the Virginia Task Force Two program down there. So you were hitting a lot of different people, Northern Virginia, Fairfax, Arlington, Alexandria. Uh, the one that came in up there 
fairly early on was Fort Belvoir, which was a military team that was assigned to a protective detail for the President of the United States and all secured military facilities for rescue. And they were set up to go anywhere at a moment's notice all over the world. So it was a lot of diversity brought in and I'm probably getting ahead of myself a little bit, but it it was a well, it was a good al- program. Al- along those same lines, um, you know, West Vaco, Mead West Vaco, we were doing training for them through my company in uh, Covington, and they had their own rescue team in house, very unique. Uh, they had an in house volunteer rescue squad and and a rescue team, and they I was telling them about it at one of their sessions, and they were like, "How do we get involved?" I said, well, you know, it's kind of municipality. It's kind of, you know, da, da, da. and then one of the years, one of the teams had to back out. So I called them up and said, hey, you guys want to be involved? And they said, absolutely. So whatever we need to do, we want to get involved in. Now, the downside was that they didn't have all the um, the different disciplines that, that they did there. They did confined space and they did rope stuff, but – they didn't do anything like with trench rescue. And so what we came up with was when they went to those stations, the facilitators who were there, which were really instructors, uh, would actually teach them sessions on what to do. And, and they appreciated it a lot. And by the time they were in their third, fourth, fifth year, uh, they didn't need any more teaching. They were doing the problems. They, they were doing the problems. Wow. Yeah. And and we'll dive into a couple of those. I got questions keep popping into my mind about the the regional cooperation thing, but I want to touch on to get to John and talk about the safety aspects of this. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier it's you know, kind of real world scenarios. We were working in industrial settings, in rock quarries, in real trenches, hanging from real roller coasters in a grain silo. Uh, you were the safety officer for the event. Obviously, you couldn't be at all six events. How did how did your role play into the organization of the group a, a lot of it was was done before it and steve and i would go around to the sites and, and talk about how we were going to work it and and one of the big challenges was to come up with keeping a strong difference between differences in technique versus safety issues because just because somebody's doing it differently doesn't mean that it's not safe uh and, and so a lot was done with that and and it really was interesting to see steve go up to someone like at a quarry and say yeah, what we want to do is we want to drop a car down onto that ledge 70 feet down there and have people go down and get fake patients out of it and bring them back up and, and convince the quarry people to do that. That was that was unique in itself because, again, you just don't think you're going to walk into somebody's business and do that. So um, so your next job is going to be a politician to be able to convince <laughs> Congress. He was no, good. No, no. He was good. You got to give him that. Well, I, and you know what? I, I attribute that to the passion for the fact that we wanted to get it done. Um, and we went in, I think we came in pretty prepared with, you know, what sign, what waivers do we need to sign? What do we need to do? You, you were. Here's no what doubt. we're going to do. Here's how we're going to do it. Here's what's involved. So it was a plan. It wasn't just showing up. But in the litigious society we're in, it's still surprising that you had the success that you did, and it says a lot for what you did. Do you think you could do it today from scratch? I mean, there's a long history with Rescue Challenge now. I I think that the folks that you were going in and teaching at their facility already, you may get some buy-in from, but the outside folks that had nothing to do with it, no. 
And I think we also have to pay tribute to the people in the other localities that ended up sponsoring this. There, It's now a rotation. It goes from Richmond to Northern Virginia, from Northern Virginia to Roanoke to Virginia Beach, and then back to Richmond uh, every two years. It rotates around. Steve wasn't involved in going to a lot of the uh, groups uh, facilit as facilitators and saying, hey, we want to use your facility in those localities. They went out and did everything. Steve was the catalyst behind it saying, okay, this is how you do it. But they went out and made the contacts and set the sites up and ran the sites. So it's it, a lot has to be said about everybody that got involved in this because without the commitment to try to make this work the first five to ten years, you wouldn't see what, what it is today. And, and to get back to the safety question, the, the key to it was the, the on-site individual scenario facilitators. Um, trying to match the right person there so they had the expertise, again, to look at the diverse ways of doing it, determine what was and wasn't safe, and had the leadership skills to be able to intervene without causing a, a true issue with uh, all of the politics that could have happened in that situation. Uh, so I, I did make it to every site every day, but I did not have huge impact on the day-to-day -day operations. Uh, again, I was the guy they called if there was a question. I was the guy that... Uh, if there was a dispute, would have to come in and be the bad guy sometimes. The moderator, the mediator. And, uh, uh, but but the true credit goes to the folks working those individual stations. So it was the facilitator that was really the safety officer for, exactly. for Rescue Challenge, even exactly. though the teams themselves had their own had safety. Their own safety yeah, to echo what John was saying a little bit, is that the first couple of years, um, the facilitators really wanted to go in and teach classes. I mean, we had to jump on them really, really hard about, look, you are not here to teach. You are here just to observe and to make sure everything is done correctly and be the interface between whatever the company. Um, and blow, blow the whistle if they step over a certain line. Right. But outside of that, however they work it, okay, if it's safe, is fine. They'll, they'll learn as much by not succeeding as they do by succeeding well and the facilitators in the end said man i learned a whole lot more than oh yeah the, the, the teams learned because i saw six, six different ways, ways. Yeah. Of, of how it operates and and they, they were all like I, I need to come back and we were fortunate enough to have the same facilitators some of them have been doing it since day one um, I know Charlie King, yeah. he's been involved since, I think he, he was a participant the first year, and after that he's been involved. But we've got several facilitators that have done multiple years, and after a while they were like, oh, we're, we're embracing this, we, we want to watch it, we, and they were very good at what they did. We still have a problem even today, and I hear talk of it in, in the groups uh, that sometimes the facilitators tend to be a little overprotective because of the new technology that's coming in, that maybe they haven't worked with some of it. So they're a little reluctant to say, yeah, go ahead and use that, and they'll step back, and there has to be that discussion about, okay, do we use this piece of equipment in this or not? But fortunately, 
everyone has looked has tried to look at what's been going on as a learning process and unless you can prove that it's you know illegal immoral or unsafe you let the team run with what they're going to do and when you do have to cross that line they're not necessarily going to like it. I've been pulled out of house fires multiple times by the D.C., and I was the most grumbling person there. If you'd just given me five more minutes, I could have taken care of this. You know, So sometimes they don't see the inherent hazards either. Uh, and they certainly don't know the site as well as the facilitators did. That was one thing that, that the rescue challenge process did well was before the people worked it there, uh, I'm imagining it still does, but back then they knew the site, um, they knew things that could be used as anchors, things that couldn't be used as anchors. They knew unsafe areas. They knew, uh, you know, other things that could happen. They knew what other operations were going on in the area with things that weren't involved with Rescue Challenge. Uh, so all of that played into it. And like I say, the, the individual coordinators on site truly deserve more credit than we can ever give them. Yep. Cool. And they worked, they worked hand in hand with the company's exactly. safety officer. And developed what can we do what can't we do uh one of the things that that brought the corporate side on i believe was the fact that we did everything that we could do to reduce their liability all the teams had to be there as a any person that was there had to be a member of a team that team had to be sponsored by their organization meaning that they were covered under their organization's workman's compensation to help redu reduce the liability to the corporate side of this that was letting us use their facility. As Steve said, there were waivers that were signed in a number of locations in order to make, uh, to make it more palatable for that organization to say, yeah, you can come on my property and do your training on my property. And that still even exists today. A little different change of, of thing. Can I ask a question? Sure, absolutely. Robbie? As the co-host, you have complete, <laughs> complete ability to ask questions. Um, what was the favorite scenario you ever worked in the entire year or set up in the entire years of doing it? Wow. Um, <laughs> uh, I, there were so many good things. Like King's Dominion was my favorite because we could do so many things. We did. We actually took an indoor roller coaster and created a uh, scenario so it would be a night scenario there. Um, we at Dominion Power, we had the uh, uh, a training tower, a the, transmission uh, tower, transmission training tower. We took. I was flying hot air balloons at the time, and I had an old balloon. And we took and strung it up in the tower like... Um, that was my personal favorite. Yeah, where, where we had an accident with multiple people in the basket and, and hanging off of the tower and, and had them do that. We, um, Purina, we got an opportunity that we actually had a confined space in a silo grain with silo. grain or, or with dog food. And they had to go in and, and get them out from there. Uh, we had confined space um, at AT&T where we had underneath and through the, the building and, and, uh, and a long distance to go. Um, gosh, I you know, uh, at various other places they had trains that they had to move. They did the O course, which we'll talk about in a second. Yeah. 
um, uh, out on the beach one year. Um, they did high rise off of buildings in downtown Fairfax. Did long lines. Yeah, did uh, swift water rescue classes, uh, or excuse me, uh, problems um, down in Roanoke, a, a cave rescue. I, I'm guessing, you know, I, I was involved with the first three years and, and kind of changed jobs and changed roles at that point and got away from it. But um, it moved away from Richmond, didn't it, Steve? It, it did. And um, after the first three years, um, it was very successful and it was growing and we had added some teams and everything was going very well. But I realized that we were going to quickly exhaust all the good opportunities that we had in Richmond. And we wanted to make it fresh and make sure that, you know, everybody got new opportunities, which as a side note, um, for the most part, doing um, surveys at all the uh, events, we had about 50% of the people that 50 to 60% were new every year. But there was still 40 to 50% of the people that came back year after year after year. I didn't want to exhaust um, all the good opportunities, and I knew there were other opportunities at other places. So in year three, I solicited um, who wanted to host it for the next year. And uh, the, the guys up in Northern Virginia piped up and said, oh, we'll, we'll host it. We think it's great. So um, we decided at that point, I decided at that point that we, we needed to revolve it around. We needed to move it around. It needed to go from place to place to place because each part of the country or each part of the state had different things to offer. Like the beach had the beach and the Naval stations and, and the military and Northern Virginia had high rises and subways and Roanoke had, you know, mountains and streams and caves and, so every part of the state had something fresh and new to offer. And luckily enough, I had people step up at every opportunity. Um, we went to Northern Virginia, did a year, and said, you know what? In order to do the best out of this, we need to get two years. And then somebody in Roanoke said, okay, we'll take it down here next. And rotated down to Roanoke. They did, they put their tax, they, every year it changed just a little bit, the the philosophy for the event never changed. It was based on non-competition. It was an opportunity to practice real-world problems. It was not a training class. It, um, it, it was a grassroots endeavor that did not involve any specific uh, entity that was going to oversee it and create special rules. So the rules were very generic and very basic um, um, that we wanted to keep by. And everybody bought into that. And as it went from location to location, everybody tweaked it a little bit for their particular area. And, and everybody tried to outdo everybody. You know, when, when it went down to Roanoke, they did a big catering thing. And, you know, that was cool. And when it went to Virginia Beach, they the social activities were, you know, above and beyond. And. Uh, which was great. So every year was a little different, but the basic grassroots of the uh, what we were trying to accomplish never changed. The networking and the and the opportunity to real world. Some of those change in venues too. I think um, reading some of the notes created scenarios, if you will, that weren't really. 
a, a rescue based type of scenario. Uh, you know, you got a victim in a grain silo, you got a victim hanging from this roller coaster or, or a car is over the cliff. It created the, the obstacle course. You want to talk about that for a minute? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess it was year two or year three. Uh, I don't remember. Um, Mike Brown from Virginia beach, uh, was one of the facilitators. And when we were having a meeting, he said, you know, what I really like to do is create a station that challenged everybody to do things and made like a team working thing. And it came to be known as the O course. And, and he, he bought into it. He, he actually owned it. It was his idea and, and, and he created it and he made it happen. And everywhere we went, one of the staples for the, um, for the event was that we had an O course and it was a team building operation. You, you had a big weight or something you had to move through a series of obstacles using simple um, rollers, winches, or excuse me, no, no mechanical stuff. It all had to be done by hand. And so the whole team had to participate in it. Um, that one that they did at the beach was cool because they did it on the beach. Uh, but every year was a little different, a little something. And we had uh, the weight that we used to move around actually ended up moving around through the through the state for all the different years and became known as the jackass. Um, it, you might be able to add to that. Yeah, that was picked up from uh, one of our, our sponsors that was working with us that year, James River Equipment, had the base of a skitter, a log skitter, that they donated in Roanoke to be used as part of this. And it had, it was probably the best thing in the world that you could pick because there wasn't a flat surface on it anywhere that you could move it. So you had to really think the problem through. Uh, the O course actually today is part of the FEMA curriculum for technical rescue or for the FEMA teams. They all go through that as part of their team building exercise. It is the only problem in rescue challenge that is actually timed for the teams to be able to look at how well they did in using that as a competitive edge to the other teams. But it's it's been a great thing. Mike did a great job of that and pushed that at all of the rescue challenge. It's a staple now that it, it has to be done at rescue challenge. Wow, it, it evolved over time to be sure. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Because originally, again, I was I was against putting a time on it, but it didn't really matter. Um, I, 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 I told him, all right, this is not going to be timed. I don't want anything timed. I don't want it to be a competition. And Guess what? Yeah, they were timing yeah, it anyway. Lo, lo and behold, <laughs> you know, when, when I went down to the, um, one of the sites and they had spray painted their time and, you know, Task Force 1 was this time and Task Force 2 was this time and, and uh, Maryland Task Force 1 was this time. I went, okay, all right, never mind. Yeah. So no matter what, the firefighter is going to compete somehow, some way, shape, or form. Yep. Well, and, and quite frankly, on all of the incidents, 
um, everybody would go back at night and go, how'd y'all do? What'd you do? How'd you do this? Now, that was a, kind of the benefit of one of the benefits that we got out of this thing was there was a lot of discussion about how teams did things and what they did and how long it took them to do it. And, you know, it was no secret. We didn't um, – we told the teams what they were going to be dealing with before they ever arrived. In fact, I'd send out an a, a email to the each of the leaders of the teams and say, hey, here's the six problems you're going to have to work. One of them is a, um, a high-angle rescue off a roller coaster – 200 feet in the air, da 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 da, and, and had all the details. And, and, and several people said, well, well, you know, that's not a, they're not going to get anything out of that because they don't have to make decisions. Oh, no, no, con contraire. What that did was all the teams were practicing those spe specific things that they were going to have to do. So we got a twofer. They got a chance to practice it at home and then go do it there and that was really the, the the benefit of yeah and they didn't get they didn't really get the full effect of what it was you're going to be going to a grain silo right, right. they didn't tell you you've got to ride a man lift up to the top of the grain silo here's the here's the size of the opening here's how far from the so you got you knew you were going to have a grain silo or you knew you were going to have a trench rescue so if you had trench equipment and there wasn't a trench scenario you could leave that at home i think that was another benefit exactly. they, they being ready. know what to bring and what they need right. and, and yeah that was uh especially at the beginning uh, all the teams really had to supply all their own equipment so we had to tell them what to expect so that they could bring their stuff now lo and behold the state after a couple of years uh, dean patrick I was talking to him, and he, you know, telling what we, what we were doing. He was one of the state instructors, and he'd come out to watch the facilitators, and he said, man, we can get involved in this. He was, I'm not sure what his position was at the time with the state, but he said, we can get involved with this. So that's when the state tech rescue program actually came on board. And when that happened, we had to coordinate and organize getting rope rescue trailers here and trench rescue trailers here and but they started supplying the basic items that we needed to make all the um obstacles or all the stations work and then the teams could bring whatever they wanted they could bring their own stuff if they wanted to they had their own uh air system that they wanted to use that was cool they had various um tech rescue devices that they used that nobody else used, they could do that. Um, so it, it worked out very, very well. Probably worth spending a little more time, and you've already touched on it, talking about the informal debriefing over a six-pack in the parking lot when all the teams started coming back. <laughs> six-pack of Dr. Pepper? That's so, right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's what he was referring to, <laughs> yeah. of course. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, that was, again, the, the two primary reasons for Rescue Challenge were, one, to give everybody – exposure to stuff that they wouldn't normally get any other way. The second reason for Rescue Challenge was to do some networking. There was a whole bunch of tech rescue junkies um, throughout the state that had been through a lot of training classes and, and were just eager to talk to each other and do things. And this is an opportunity for them to sit down with each other and talk about it. And so 
in the evenings, it was, uh, that, that's what it was all about, was go to the parking lot and get your Dr. Pepper and, and sit around and, and chew the fat and talk about the problems that you had and the problems that you were having back home. You know, getting equipment and, and, and getting organization. Uh, it, it worked out very, very well. Uh, actually, greater than my <laughs> expectations. I, re I remember actually seeing teams talking to other teams and taking sticks and drawing in the dirt how they had done things, which never would have happened if it were a win-a-trophy type competition. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, they shared a lot. Let's go back to, you know, kind of practical application. Did you ever get any feedback from either teams or team members or facilitators that they took something back, you know, in 1995 or 6 or 7, and then maybe two or three years later, oh, I see a very similar real-life incident that I took something away from Rescue Challenge that I was able to use on this actual event. Did you ever hear any of those stories? Uh, I, I never got any. Um <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you guys did. You'd, you'd hear something every now and then that, you know, they had a vehicle extrication and they had a heavy lifting problem associated with it. And they used the techniques that they used in the O course because they didn't have a lot of heavy equipment available at that time to do that. Uh, you'd hear the instances like that. They were few and far to be, between to begin with, but as the event progressed and grew, because you went from six teams to eight teams to ten teams, uh, now you're starting to see other groups come in from around the eastern region of the, the, the mid-Atlantic region, Maryland, uh, and Virginia combining to bring people in, uh, it, it started to open up a dialogue between everyone. You know, what can we do to push this further? What can we, what other training events can we sponsor and move? And that's one of the things that, that started the Tech Rescue Association was trying to put together something within the state of Virginia to formally identify who the teams are in Virginia that can be counted on in a large-scale event, similar to the hazmat teams that the state had created around the state in order to uh, handle and mitigate the large hazmat incidences. So was that, you know, the, the six-pack of Dr. Pepper in the parking lot of the hotel with the stick in the sand was that really the, the nexus and the, the start of the Virginia Rescue Association? I think so. Yes. I, I, I believe so. I, um, I think that those conversations that took place in, in later years, it actually became formal meetings during Rescue Challenge. You know, it was, okay, we're going to have a meeting at this time to talk about these things, and, and people would come in from all the teams. And that's where it evolved. Again, it started as grassroots, and... You know, it built into something that was statewide and was a formal way of, it was the formal voice of the tech rescue folks. Well, while certainly that may have been an impetus for it, we would be remiss if we don't give credit to Steve Parrott. There you go. For championing and working to get that organization going. He truly was the driving force beside, behind that part of it, just like Steve was the driving force behind Rescue Challenge. Yeah, and Steve Parrott, also a retired fire, he was a retired battalion chief from Chesterfield and uh, one of those rescue junkies uh, Steve mentioned. So 
a tip of the hat to Steve Parrott out there. Well, one of the benefits that um, once the Tech Rescue Association came on board, one of the problems that we were having was because it was grassroots and it wasn't a an entity that was overseeing rescue challenge. There was no formal budgeting. There was no formal finance. There was no, there was nothing formal that went with it at all. So, at one of the events, Ed and I talked, and I said, you know, we we got to come up with some way to carry this from event to event to event, and we came up with using the Tech Rescue Association as that impetus to oversee the finances for because, quite frankly, we we were. We were actually making money on some of the events just in that small registration fee. People would donate things, people would give us things, and we wouldn't we wouldn't even have to pay for things. So at the end of the day, we may come up with a couple thousand dollars that, from an event that we wanted to pass back into the event, but we didn't have any way to do that. So the Tech Rescue Association, and quite. Frankly, I was, Ed I was the secretary treasurer. It, it, it did it. it did. And uh, my job was to step in and fill that void uh, for several years. For the first five years of the event, at least, there was no accountability for where money went, how it was spent, what was left over, and what you do with it when you had money left over. So we decided that there were questions raised by the sponsoring localities saying, hey, how do we start this? Because we have no money. So we went in and looked at that and said, okay, let's do this. We'll come on board and provide you a credit card. Uh, and we'll solicit, solicit some seed money up front to get this started. And that's what we did. We went out and and talked to a, uh, a couple of localities. Henrico was one of the ones. Henrico and Hanover stepped up and put money into the event to get it going real well. And that money went into a banking account for the Tech Rescue Association so that when we went to meet with, with the sponsoring agencies for the event that year, we handed them a credit card. We gave them, okay, this is what you can do with this. This is what you can't do with this. You can't take all your buddies out to dinner or out for lunch to discuss Rescue Challenge and buy them all lunch or dinner. It has to be spent on the event. So when you say you gave that card, you were giving it to uh, the group in Roanoke or Fairfax who were going to be Correct. the host, host agency for that next event. Correct. And then at the end... They had to provide us receipts for everything that they bought. And we asked them, we developed a letter for them to use uh, to actually solicit the sites. A letter that they could use to solicit donations towards it, whether it be goods or services or whatever. Uh, we provided that to them, which came back and actually started to provide some continuity of how everything was going to be done across the board. Did you ever seek any grant funding? We never have looked at that. Actually, I did. I, I, I put in for a grant. Um, we did not receive it, but we did put in for it. We, we did get, uh, along those lines, uh, we did get 
several NACO awards, the National Association. The county organization. Yeah, yeah, we got those. But I did put in for a grant in, in year three, and um, we, we didn't receive it. But and it sounds like that didn't hamper the evolution of the oh, event. No, no. Oh, in, in fact, it got to a point where we talked about, okay, we got this we got this money. We need to do something with it. We ended up buying stuff for, like, the O-Course because the O-Course tears up a lot of equipment. So, you know, jurisdictions didn't want to put up, you know, um, all the money for ropes and for um, the hardware that was involved. So we purchased stuff, and it moved from location to location with the event. Yeah, we purchased the equipment. We purchased the uh, job boxes and stuff like that to store the equipment in from year to year so that it would be be available for the next uh, sponsoring localities to have it there for them. Uh, that took a lot of money. I mean, when you start talking about buying, especially on the O course, about buying chain falls and uh, especially heavy duty ones, five-ton chain falls or buying... Uh, shackles, carabiners, things like that, the ropes that they were going to use for mechanical advantage systems, all of that adds up very quickly. That that stuff is not cheap by any means. And we started to put that into it. Uh, but when we, when we moved it to a jurisdiction, we told them, said, okay, you guys are hosting it this coming year. It's, you've got to find some place to house it, but you're welcome to use it for what in you want meantime. to do in your training. So the jurisdiction's got the opportunity to take advantage of all this training equipment that was just for training uh, that was not life safety equipment. So it, it worked out pretty good. Wow. In, in some of the large uh, Highline applications, we bought the rope for that so that it could be used year after year, and we kept the log on it and everything that should be done. I mean, you just don't go out and buy a 1,500-foot spool of rope. Not routinely, anyway. That's right. And, you know, we talked to Matt, we talked to Sterling Rope was one of the sponsoring groups that, that came up and said, look, you know, we can't give it to you for nothing, but we can give it to you for at our cost. So that cut, that cut the cost of a lot of things in half, mm -hmm. and that was what the the letter actually asked people to do. We know that, that you may not be able to afford to give it to us, but can you work with us? Because Rescue Challenge is sponsored. It's a grassroots organization. There isn't a lot of money in this, and we broke it down and showed them what we were doing. And uh, it, it turned out to be a great thing, and it's still going that way today. Yeah, we ended up with a whole lot of sponsors that... Uh, e either goods or services or whatever uh, were involved. And uh, all you got to do is, is go s tell somebody, look, this is for the fire services, this is for the betterment, this is da-da-da-da-da, and easy to sell, easy to sell. People go, okay, lots of the sites that we went to, people would actually say, look, what can we do? Can we provide lunches? So that was one less cost to the event was, uh, you know, they they covered the cost of lunches for 200 people. And again, while we're giving hat tips, we need to, to recognize Pete, who's no longer with us, 
for lunches the first year. Oh yeah, the yep. first couple of years. Pete yep. Taylor. Yep. Yep. Um, we've been at it for more than an hour now, so I want to try to kind of wrap us up and uh, ask a couple of last kind of summary questions here from uh, from any of you guys. Is a what kind of major lessons learned do you have out of this rescue challenge event? Whether it was uh, something technical related, you know, you know how you do the te- the rescue itself, or how you manage an event that's this big. What's uh, what's a maybe a takeaway or two that you can point to from um, from running this event planning planning is the key is um getting with the right players who have the right uh, motivation to make sure that things go well and again that's easy to do because of all the i keep we using the word tech rescue junkies um yeah the people are passionate about making this happen so you get the right people on the planning committee and you sit down and come up with a goals for them to achieve and then get them, let them go, set them free, let them be creative. Don't um, stifle their creativity and let them go do their thing. And what we found was a whole lot of people did a whole lot of good things and made things happen that you look at and go, how in the heck did that work? There's no way we could do that. We're into a, a company that, you would never think you'd be into. Right. We're we're doing things that um, are super high risk, but we got full full uh, advantage of, of of all those things because of the people that were involved. And it's all about the planning. The yeah. other thing was adding a coordinating agency, the Tech Rescue Association, to have someone there that was going to have at their fingertips all the past records of what was done. What did it cost? How did you manage the money? And you set all of that up, which actually takes the localities, and then they can go back and go, finally, I don't, it's not going to all come out of our pockets. And once we had that in place, and we had someone that could go from event to event a locality to the next locality when it was sponsored there and say, okay, here's what you got to work with. It made it a lot easier on getting people on board to go and, and make it all happen. So they weren't starting from scratch, so to speak. That's right. Yeah. Somebody was, yeah, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. What you have to do is let's make the wheel better. There you go. I don't know how many, I, I probably, thousands and thousands of participants over the 25 years that this went through and and you know it, it, it's hard to gauge how much those people got out of it um, beyond just the rescue aspect the technical stuff the things that they learned and they picked up and they networked and and that they took back um, to their day-to-day fire jobs and the times they talked to each other afterwards because they had met the people there. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It, 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 the networking was, and the technical knowledge that was obtained was certainly good, but the, the networking also was fantastic. Great, great stories. I mean, we could probably sit here for hours and, um, Charlie King was a name that came up in Steve and I's conversation and certainly somebody, maybe, maybe next time we get together, we can get Charlie 
uh, in person and uh, even get his perspective and how things went in Roanoke and, you know, what he learned along the way too. So I, this is a question I've asked, uh, I asked John in the intro, um, and this is something I've, some feedback I've already gotten from the, even the first episode is particularly the, the younger folks who are in the fire service today enjoy hearing those pearls of wisdom from the senior members and senior being that you're not old, but you've been around for a while. Um, so I'll ask, uh, Stephen, Ed, both this question. If you had, you know, think about back to your whole careers, 30 plus years, each of you, um, you, know, you, get, you get a chance to sit in front of a recruit academy that's going to graduate in a week. What pearl of wisdom would you give them to help them through their emergency services career uh, going forward? Mine would be never stop learning. Remember that there's always new technology developing, that, it, that the fire service is, when you're out on the fire ground or on the emergency scene, it is a team effort. You're not going to do it by yourself. You have to remember that there are people supporting you, that are people working with you, and you've got to be willing to trust them and work with them and to push everything forward as a group. One person can make a difference, but they're not going to be the difference. There you go. Well, and, and along those same lines, I, I think that the biggest uh, advice that I can tell people is embrace the opportunity. Um, take advantage of every aspect of it that you can. Um, take advantage of the people that are involved. Uh, there's there's a lot of really, really good people that are in, involved in the fire, EMS, police, uh, emergency services in general. Um, and, and become a family, you know, uh, treat it as a family and understand that this is not going to last forever. I, I tell you what, uh, when I look back at my career, it's like it was a, a flash. It, it came and went so quick. Um, at the time, I probably felt like, oh, this is, you know, wow, this is going to last forever. I got 10 years to retirement. Well, that 10 years disappeared overnight and, and went away quick. One of the other things that I was told, and I didn't do it, was um, as a new recruit, start doing a journal, um, a, a, a journal of one entry a day, something that happened that day, something you thought about, something that was funny, something that occurred, um, not, nothing detailed, nothing big, nothing fancy, uh, but one, one or two entries a day, and, and that's it. And that's not so much to go back to write the book, but it's a, a lot of trying to figure out what's important to you. Because then you got to sit down and go, okay, this. what am I going to put in the journal today? This happened today. This was an important part of my life. So it's, it's a learning experience as much as a documentation. Wow. Now, with that being said, probably had I kept a journal through my entire career, it would have been a bestseller uh, <laughs> because of all those stories and the things that happened and, and all that stuff. But more importantly, it's, it's a self-learning tool. Would it awesome. have been a bestseller or would it have been used at your trial? Okay. There's we're not going there. <laughs> Let, let's you, not go there. You, you just got to be careful what you put in the journal. That, so. That's exactly right. Awesome. Uh, just to wrap up here, um, again, thanks to everybody who's downloaded and listened, listening to the podcast that um, we're doing it 
for those folks because uh, these are great stories that Ed and Steve and John are sharing with us, and uh, that's kind of the objective here of getting getting those things in the the virtual logbook through this podcast. So, uh, just want to give a shout out to everybody who's listening and downloading, and uh, ask you to give your feedback. And uh, you can do that through a number of different ways. Uh, the email address is firehouselogbook at gmail dot com. Uh, we're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, Twitter handle is at fdlogbook. The Instagram is at fdlogbookpodcast. And uh, we're on Facebook. And if you just search fdlogbook, you'll find it on Facebook as well. And uh, for anybody who wants to go to the fa- the website that's dedicated strictly to this podcast, it's thefirehouselogbook.captivate.fm. And I uh, appreciate everybody's feedback. And Give us a like, give us a download, uh, let us know what you think, and uh, any ideas for uh, future episodes, please share those along too. And uh, with that, uh, my thanks to John uh, for joining me again. I uh, appreciate you being here and helping out. And uh, even more importantly, thanks to Lieutenant Ed Donovan and Chief Steve Wood from Henrico for their service to the community over the years and uh, for setting Rescue Challenge up for 25-plus years of success now. Thank you guys very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.